Hello and welcome to the Ark & Co podcast. My name is Matthew Yassin, a director in the Structured Finance team. Hello, I'm Andrew Robinson. I'm CEO of Ark & Co. The team here at Ark & Co thought we'd put together a podcast to illustrate the thoughts and feelings that are going through the commercial finance world today. What we'd like to achieve is get to understand better some industry figureheads and get to know their journey that they've been on over the last 10 to 15 years. And secondly, we'd like to understand where the industry is going an education of the next generation in the financial services sector. And conclusively, we'd like you to rate, review and subscribe and tell all your colleagues as this will help us spread the message that we want and educate others. And most important of all, please enjoy listening to Andrew and I talk about the financial world. Hi, welcome to the Ark & Co podcast. Uh, today, I'm quite excited to introduce uh, Johan Gruthardt, the CEO of Fiducium. Welcome, Johan. Thank you very much. Lovely to have you here. How are we doing today? Good. Um, busy day because uh, obviously there's still a lot of loans going through before the end of the uh, STEM duty holiday. Have you found that there's been a bit of a uh, a bit of a whirlwind month then, due to due to what's going on in the in the stamp duty side of things? Yes, that and the combination with C uh, bills, where um, basically the C bills had to be offered by the end of May, and they now have to be closed by the end of August. So there's still a lot of C bills loans actually going through. They've been offered, but they're being closed right now. When is the deadline? Is it is it the end of August at the moment? End of August. Right. Okay. Well, I hope to uh, not keep you far away from the office for too long. Not a problem. Um, today we're going to talk about your journey. Um, I know the listeners are keen to know more about Fiducium as a business, but initially we're going to start out and, and talk about how you uh, entered the financial services sector, uh, a bit of background. So when did it all start out? Fiducium was set up in uh, 2015, uh, but I've been around for longer than that. Uh, I started off my financial services career in 94, so quite a while ago. Uh, back in the time, it was at Merrill Lynch, that's no Bammel. Uh, spent 10 years at Deutsche Bank, uh, set up a company, sold that to UBS, and um, all those years, I was really working on the equity side uh, of the business, uh, you know, derivatives, structured products, uh, etc. And so what became apparent um, following the financial crisis was that um, the loan markets, the, you know, for people to get leverage, uh, that part of the market didn't really work properly anymore. And so uh, at that moment of time, I said, look, you know, it's time to do something new and to redirect my career uh, to where, um, you know, there was the largest void to fill as such. And so um, that is why basically I went into lending, uh, entirely new world for me. Um, so when we started off in 2015, we did the first loan uh, nearly exactly six years ago. And um, I remember sending an email to our lawyer as we got in a request from the broker for a completion statement, um, I sent an email to the lawyer saying, what is a completion statement? So I basically had to entirely retool myself to get into this business. And so it's been a fantastic six years since. Did you spot an opportunity then when uh, coming from the equity side to the sort of debt uh, market? Was there, was there a clear uh, vision as to what you wanted to achieve? Did you see a, an opening there? Absolutely. So all of that is really driven by the changes put in place following the financial crisis. 
So does Basel III, now we're talking about Basel IV. And basically what it comes down to is that banks need to hold on to much more risk capital. And that makes a lot of lending for them increasingly unattractive. And that's the fundamental opportunity. So um, particularly, you know, at UBS when I was there, a lot of our time would go into, okay, how can we shrink the balance sheet? And that is not unique to UBS. All the banks are dealing with that challenge. And so obviously um, the commercial loan books, uh, you know, the lending to SMEs, that was the first one to be affected. Um, Residential mortgages, um, that has been affected much less because the um, capital that need to be held for that, um, you know, has increased a little bit, but not as much as for SME lending. And that's the fundamental uh, driver, basically, um, of a lot of the, um, you know, developments we see in our business. So effectively, if you look at the banks, what they've been doing for many years is when you have a very large corporate that needs money, is that it's not really the bank giving the loan. The bank would syndicate the loan or would structure a bond and then place it with institutional investors. And what we now see is that there's this whole wave of new lenders coming into the market, like Fiducium, that are basically doing exactly the same for the smaller loans, right? For the smaller commercial loans, for the bridge loans, for the development loans, etc. So we're effectively creating... An, a platform that sits between the investor, the institutional, and the borrower, uh, just like a debt capital markets desk would be at the large banks uh, there as an intermediary between the borrower and the institutional investors. So nothing new, but obviously doing the same for much smaller loans, sure. right? The difference being the loan size. It's a route to market for the investors to access the SME market, if you like, exactly. on a smaller scale that the, that the banks would do internally on, the, on a much larger scale, I suppose. That's absolutely right. And, you know, the banks obviously invest a lot in technology, but they have to deal with, the, you know, the legacy that they have. They have very complex systems. So it's not that easy to bring an in innovation from within a bank because it has to work with all the systems that are already there. It's actually much easier to set up something outside of a bank and to start with a clean slate. And they, of course, can be involved with their own funding lines and support and access those markets without having to inherently change internally, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. So when, when, when Fiducium was set up, um, did you have a, a, an objective in mind, obviously supporting the SMEs, looking at the bridging sector, the development sector? You know, since inception, the company's grown inexplicably. Um, what was the original objective and, and what was the sort of early seeds of thought, if you like? The objective of Fiducium um, is basically to be a meaningful um, pan-European lender to entrepreneurs, uh, SMEs. Now, that, that model has uh, changed uh, as we basically went along. Um, it is a matter of, of discovering the market and actually seeing where the need is the highest. So at some point, we were very much looking at agricultural finance. We still want to develop that as a, a business line, but we haven't done so because of the, you know, risk elements surrounding Brexit, not knowing what, uh, you know, what kind of arrangement the UK would have and hence what the impact would be on the prices of agricultural produce and therefore on the value of land. 
So we are effectively uh, developing a very wide offering of loan solutions to the clients and we develop it progressively based on need. And so therefore, the first thing we have done is to diversify geographically. So we started off by lending in London, then started to cover the rest of England. In the meantime, we cover obviously also Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. We then moved into Netherlands, the Republic of Ireland, Spain, Germany, and we can also take security in France effectively. Um, and so we've been expanding our coverage uh, geographically, um, which has proven to be a true value add for a lot of borrowers because about half of our borrowers in Spain are actually companies or entrepreneurs that are of British origin, that live here or that may have moved and that find it incredibly difficult to get a loan in Spain. And so a lot of the business we do is actually business that was historically done by a lot of the private banks, by many of the private banks, and uh, that they're no longer doing for the reason I gave you, which is basically, you know, the effort to reduce complexity, shrink balance sheet, uh, etc. I think you've made a very good point there. One of the most prominent things of Fiducium was the fact that you've got the capacity to go across the borders, pan-European, for example. Was there um, was that always part of the plan, or was it just a natural progression once you essentially understood the London market, understood the UK market, the, the Northern Ireland market, and was it always the plan, or, or did it just happen naturally? It was always part of the plan, um, but then it was driven by opportunities. So uh, we basically got to know a London-based um, development company that is owned by an Irish family. And they said, look, you've got to come to Ireland because we need you in Ireland. There is nobody out there lending. And so it's always driven by uh, specific opportunities, but at the same time, it has always been part of the plan. So. I guess when looking at the European model uh, and in comparison to the UK model, um, is there a fundamental difference in underwriting? Because obviously, culturally, um, value adds and, and valuations, I guess, across the borders are very, very different. Um, how do you sort of have the capacity to deal with that internally? Because, you know, a, a simple development, let's say, in the UK um, would, would I, I suppose, appear very differently in, in Spain or, or in France. It definitely adds a lot of complexity. It's very challenging. The principles remain the same. You're dealing with security, you're dealing with a borrower. So that doesn't change. But indeed, valuation standards vary quite a lot. Also, when something goes wrong, enforcement procedures can be very different. Um, and so you also have the language hurdle, the FX exposure. So we have to deal with all of these things. Um, but from our perspective, we do want to be, and we've always wanted to be a pan-European lender, uh, providing solutions to clients, not necessarily in every country, but in quite a few European countries. We were able to do that because uh, Henrik, who is a co-founder, and myself, we've always been covering clients all around Europe in our financial services career. So for us, this didn't come as something new. Right. Henrik is Dutch, I'm Belgian. So if you come from those smaller countries, you've got to export, you've got to go to other countries. Mm -hmm. So that's part of our DNA. 
was obviously a lender that has more rooted into the UK, maybe very happy just to cover the UK market because it's a huge market. No, we obviously set up shop in London. That's where our head office is. But in the meantime, we have an office in the Netherlands. We have an office in Frankfurt, Germany, and we're basically setting up an office in uh, Belfast right now. Wow, that's a pretty good operation. So I guess I we do a lot at Ark Co in Europe, uh, as you know. We've we've done a few things in Spain with you guys. Um, do you find that the market's underfunded in certain sections of, of Europe? Because there are lenders that look at you know twenty, thirty million plus, but underneath that sort of bracket, I guess, aside from the banks, there's not that much support for for SMEs out there in Europe. Do you, do, you, do you find that at all? Do you think that that's where you're collecting a lot of the market share? Yeah, the UK remains the largest market for, I would say, the non-bank development loan product, bridging loan product, etc. Um, so there are statistics that are collected by the Association of Short-Term Lenders from all of the members of that association. And that shows that there is basically an overall loan book of around 6 billion in uh, the segment in the UK. And so the UK is by far the largest market. At the same time, we see these markets developing very rapidly in other European countries. Now, again, one has to go back to the changes that have been introduced by the governments following the financial crisis. The UK was one of the first to basically impose much more stringent capital requirements on the banks. So the UK has basically been a driver in reforming its financial services industry. That's also why in the UK you had a lot of challenger banks. Try to find any challenger banks outside of the UK. It's hard. I mean, there are more challenger banks in the UK than all of Europe together. (laughs) And so the UK basically has been very much driving forward the changes that were needed following the financial crisis. But now we see the other European countries doing the same thing. And as they do the same thing, you see exactly the same need for non-bank lending arising in these countries. And that's basically the wave that we're riding. Now, then of course, You've got these short-term effects where suddenly there's a new lender that enters into the market and some people are not always equally diligent or they may have a higher appetite for risk. And then it may be that for six months, you know, someone basically eats away a lot of business. Um, You know, we all face that. Uh, But that, you know, new people come and go. And so, you know, as we become an increasingly important lender that affects us, you know, less as obviously uh, you've got then a number of um, borrowers for whom we've become their traditional source of funds. And there's a, there's, a, there's a true benefit in that for them and for us, because once you know each other, once there's a good relationship between the borrower and the lender, obviously that has a lot of value. Do you do a lot of repeat business with borrowers at the moment then? Is that, is that the, one of the focuses of Fiducium at the minute? It is one of the focuses. So um, we, for us, it's really important to have repeat business. If, if we do good business, if we have got a good borrower, uh, a good combination, and it obviously always, you know, most of the cases involves a broker as well, um, then if we do our job well, 
And if the borrower is good, then effectively you should have repeat business. And Why for would us, you that's yeah. exactly. And for us, that's a very important measure of success. And so, for a number of the um, UK borrowers that we deal with, we have basically become their primary source of uh, finance. And uh, when they go out and they want to buy a property, you know, the first point to call is going to be fiducium. That's probably encouraging on your side because, you know, once you've transacted with somebody, there's a bit of trust there. Um, and from our side, of course, we, we were always looking for uh, repeat business with clients. So what, what, what is the loan book now then? Because over the course of the last, you know, few years, you've grown slowly but surely in the background. Your, your object is longevity rather than coming in, taking market share and, you know, hoping for the best at, with, with risky loans um, issuing to the market. So where are you at the moment? What, what, what's the loan book size and, and how, how has that grown over the last few years? Yeah, the loan book size at this moment of time is a quarter billion. It's been pretty flat for the last two years. Obviously, as a lot of these loans are project-related, the bridging loans or development loans, their maturity is quite short. So obviously, you have to replenish that loan book at a very high rate. And so for us, the objective is to grow that book to half a billion, um, you know, as as soon as we can, but always in a very sustainable fashion. Uh, we have enough funding to do that. Um, and then, you know, who knows, you know? So ambitions go much further than that, um, but uh, we do it step by step. We don't want to be rushed by uh, anybody. And uh, it's easy enough to set up a lender. The challenge is to survive the cycles. And we have just seen that last year with a number of lenders disappearing. And for us, it's very important to be seen as a very stable lender. Because if you're a borrower and, you know, you engage in a project, in many cases, your loan consists of multiple drawdowns. You want to be certain that your lender is there for every drawdown. And so we have done a lot of refinancing last year where borrowers had taken up loans from other lenders that couldn't follow up with the drawdowns in the midst of the pandemic. And, you know, obviously, you can have a fantastic project, but if your lender suddenly stops the drawdowns, you know, your project derails. And so we had to, you know, we basically refinanced a few loans from other lenders uh, where that was happening. I think you've, uh, you've made a very good point there. Over the last 12 to 18 months, um, many people have fallen on hard times given the, 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 the backdrop environment of the, the pandemic. We've picked up quite a few uh, loans that are uh, simply not funded anymore by, by their partners or their, their funding partners. Yeah. How have you found the, the, you know, the waves of the last you know, 12 to 18 months? And have, have a lot of your loans, um, you know, did they need careful management? Did it reflect good underwriting? Um, or was there any worrying sort of times uh, uh, for Dusium? It was definitely a challenging period. So, uh, first of all, everybody had to start working from home. We can come back to that later. Mm -hmm. But then it was basically about standing by our borrowers. From our perspective, it's important to have a good cooperative relationship with the borrowers because the reality is there are always things that go wrong. And so if that relationship is there, you can overcome these hurdles. So what we have done is basically talk to all of the borrowers and see which borrowers could continue to service the interest and which borrowers couldn't. And so we then granted 
tailored interest holidays, not a blanket kind of approach because that wouldn't be good risk management. But where the need is there, you don't want your borrower to trip over because you know some, suddenly someone stops paying the rent. What was also very important for us was to basically become a participant in the corona, uh, coronavirus business interruption loan scheme set up by the UK government. That wasn't an easy process because we had never been a partner of the British Business Bank, so it was the first time that we approached them. And yes, there's quite a few lenders uh, under that scheme, but uh, it is very difficult to get in. And, you know, we're very proud, uh, you know, when uh, the beginning of July last year, there was this announcement going out, BBVA and Fiducium become part of the C-Bills program. And so... We have been able to help our borrowers very much with that program because we had quite a few loans out there to hotels, care homes, um, developers, etc. been very much affected by the pandemic. And then helping them with a the C-Bills loan was often the element that they needed to keep their business afloat. Yeah, I mean, you guys are very active in the Seabills market. Um, and by helping those businesses, you've probably kept afloat quite a few to allow them to overcome the challenges of the last 12 months. Um, are you planning on, uh, are you, have you signed up to the RLS scheme, the recovery loan scheme as well, the, the, the next section of, of that market, I guess? Yes, we have applied. And so we intend to become uh, a part of that. Uh, obviously, that's subject uh, to approval. Um, that is going to be a smaller scheme because as we can all see coming out of this pandemic, uh, economic growth is quite strong. So one has to be selective where such loans are needed. And, you know, our view is that at this moment of time, coming out of this whole, you know, recession effectively, that um, actually, you know, the economy is probably surprising all of us on the upside. And therefore, you know, we believe that in certain cases, that scheme will still be relevant, but obviously much less so than C-bills. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, but as we both know, any assistance for that section of the market at the moment is, is, is very much appreciated because obviously, you know, operational income assets such as hotels and so on have been underfunded over the last 12 months. Everybody's pulled out of the market. And, you know, if, if that continues, then, you know, we could be losing quite a few institutions. So, I mean, you, you touched on it earlier. You mentioned everybody went working from home. Um, Ark & Co have... Uh, a very much team ethos. We like being in the office. And, and for us, it was an adjustment. So, you know, Teams, Zoom and all that sort of stuff. How do you think technology is sort of embracing the financial services sector? I mean, I'm familiar with your loan builder um, at Portal, which I think is a very, very good. Thank you. Um, and, you know, talk to me about the way you guys view technology and the thinking behind the Portal and, and what you want that to achieve for the business. From our perspective, technology is absolutely crucial in this business. So when we started off, we immediately used, let's call it a bank treasury loan booking system. So we basically use a software solution that's also used by a number of the challenger banks. It didn't make any sense to develop that internally because these are very heavy and obviously very secure systems. And so we basically customized that for ourselves. 
But then, you know, you also have that whole origination process. And for that, we built Fiducium Loan Builder. And because we have invested quite a bit in technology, I mean, it was basically very smooth to go to working from home. I mean, there was no real business interruption. Everybody just took their laptop. We shipped out a few screens because we knew that people would be staying at home for a while so that they didn't have to stare at a small laptop screen for weeks or months. And from a technology perspective, that all worked very, very well. However, what the pandemic has also shown is the limitations of technology. Um, a lot of people say that um, one could do without offices. Um, from my perspective, what the pandemic has proven is that you really can't do without an office. An office is crucial. Um, effectively, you know, what the office brings is the ability to train uh, newcomers, uh, to train the younger uh, people within the organization, uh, to engage employees, uh, to communicate much more effectively. Because if you're all sitting in an open space, everybody kind of hears what someone else is working on. Um, it's just much more efficient. And so we have been back in the office from the 6th of July of uh, last year. And, um, you know, obviously beginning of this year, uh, you know, again, occupancy came down because of the new wave that we had. But the office has been pretty much open uh, since the 6th of July of last year. And, uh, you know, we're very happy with that because uh, we know um, are in, uh, into our 2021 graduate program. So we're hiring 10 graduates from university. And uh, the reactions we get are, are great. I mean, people, you know, these students say, well, we actually want to join a company where we can go to an office rather than sitting behind a screen and not really being integrated into a company. It's invaluable, I think, um, you know, especially for um, graduates to hear how the more experienced individuals speak to clients, how they handle problems, how they provide solutions. Um, I totally agree with you in, in terms of having a, a central point of a company to be able to share that experience and, and move forward. So given where your loan book is positioned, you know, heavily weighted on the SME market, um, invested heavily in net operational income assets such as hotels, um, offices and purpose-built student accommodation, are you worried that those sections of the market are under pressure given the changes of of culture within companies and the changes of the way uh, society is viewing those assets going forward from a funding perspective? Yeah, first of all, our loan book is mainly exposed to residential uh, property. So very much, you know, conversion, development, refurbishment, those type of projects. But as a lender, we have never been afraid to do new things. And so we went into different countries and we also said, look, you know, yes, we should lend to hotels. We even lend to a car manufacturer, TVR. And, um, you know, we have never been uh, afraid of entering these uh, segments. Uh, and therefore, yes, indeed, we do have exposure to care homes, to hotels, to, you know, to student homes and, uh, you know, farms, uh, quite a few different type of uh, operating uh, companies. There will be some fundamental shifts in some of these pockets, and we obviously have to uh, deal with that. 
Um, but at the same time, you know, if you lend to a good hotel pre-COVID, that's still going to be a good hotel post-COVID. And as we tend to be maybe a somewhat more conservative lender than some others, you know, we haven't had too much of an issue with that so far. Uh, but obviously, it is something that we'll need to continue to look at fairly carefully. And we get quite a few requests where we just have to decline them right now because we're not sure whether these assets will ever come back. So, for instance, well, we have never been hot on shopping malls. But I mean, right now, what's the future of shopping malls? We don't really know. Or certain hotels that are very much catering for the corporate sector. So for corporate offsites, etc., will this market segment come back? We don't know. Do you see any openings, perhaps, that um, sub-markets sort of showing their faces? As you say, corporate hotels are under pressure, and we've seen quite a few proposals that, you know, perhaps two or three years ago would have been looked at upon very, very differently to in today's world. Um, do you find that other markets are flourishing, such as perhaps you know, the shared office space maybe, uh, and a, a new sort of ways of working or ways of seeing things. Um, do you, are you finding any of that new trends coming into the market at all? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there, there's an acknowledgement that, um, you know, people will benefit from much more flexible working arrangements following this uh, pandemic. I think it's PwC that made an announcement two days ago that uh, all the employees can work from home if they like to and that that will be a continuing arrangement. And so a lot of people are coming to the conclusion, well, actually, you know, maybe my main residence should no longer be in London or Amsterdam or Dublin, but maybe I could go and live on the countryside or even the seaside. So we have seen an enormous shift of demand towards properties in rural and seaside settings. And uh, we have been surprised by the amount of redemptions that we have been getting uh, from these uh, segments because developers active in those segments have been selling their properties like hotcakes, effectively. So we have been financing... Uh, a particular development, uh, it was a 35 million loan and, um, you know, nearly all of it has been paid back uh, during the pandemic because they were selling the properties at twice the rate that they had expected. So that actually brings me on to my next point. Being, uh, considering the exposure to the residential market and the development side of things on a geographical basis, I mean... It's spreading out now, isn't it? I mean, London was the focus, um, strong residential market. But given the pandemic, you know, people are thinking, I want a larger garden. I want to live by the seaside. I'll go back to where I'm, I, I was born and so on. And, and are you, are you, do you have more confidence when it comes to proposals that are perhaps, you know, away from the London market now? Uh, and do you feel that that will continue? Or is it a, a short change or a short blip and, and things will return to normal? We have never been very London-centric. So London obviously is an important segment given uh, its size, but we have always been lending all across the UK, uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, etc. Yes, I believe that that is a recalibration that is there to stay. And there's other elements 
that uh, play into this as well, I believe. So obviously uh, Brexit has taken some of the pressure off the London market. Uh, the government is clearly trying to do an effort to have also economic engines, you know, or strengthening economic engines, uh, you know, outside of the Southeast. And, you know, we are, I don't have statistics in front of me, but I believe we are financing, you know, more development around Manchester, Liverpool, than we are financing in and around London. With the residential developments that are going on, there's a lot of talk of inflation over the next 12 to 18 months and how that pressure is going to be put on material costs uh, and so on. So when you have a proposal for a new residential development, um, how do you scrutinise the gross development value and, and the build costs? Are you taking into account um, the inflationary measures that can affect those, those principal costs? And what are your thoughts? I mean, how do you think it will go... That's a very good question and there's no true answer or no obvious answer to this question. Ultimately, it's about making sure that enough contingency is embedded and ensuring that the developer has locked in as many of the trades and as many of the raw materials uh, that are required. But obviously, you know, you're not necessarily going to order your kitchen um, when you start with the foundations, right? That generally comes a little bit later. That being said, as the economy returns to normal, we believe that the inflationary pressures will subside and will not continue. Um, but, you know, that is obviously to be proven. Um, again, one has to look here at uh, what the trade arrangements of the UK will be with the rest of the world. So that if imports from Europe become maybe a little bit harder that, um, you know, we can start importing from other countries. Um, and so we'll need to see how that pans out. I mean, there's so many unknowns there. Um, so we'll need to see. As you say, there's a lot of variables, uh, a lot of undecided variables, you know, with the negotiations that are going on with the European Union. Um, in terms of house pricing at the moment, you know, Savile's reporting record months, um, people are, are getting, you know, above asking price offers, stamp duty holiday about to, about to be tapered down. Um, do you think there's a correction coming or do you feel the demand is there and will it continue? Um, because I think statistically, over the course of a 12-month period, 5% of the population roughly move. Um, and over the course of the last 12 months, I think 45% of the population has traded one way or the other, whether they've moved or bought a second home and so on. Do you think that's going to affect, going forward, the, the demand for residential uh, units? It's not an easy question to answer. First of all, there is a strong continued demand for affordable real estate in the UK. And there's a lot of stock that needs to be renewed. So it's not just about building new houses, but often refurbishing, converting them, permitted development. One of the statistics to watch is basically the immigration into the UK. Because historically, the UK has had 250 to 300,000 people coming in every year. Now we're in a very different immigration regime, which has been introduced at the beginning of the year. So that's certainly going to change immigration. There's a 
certain cost to come into the country right now because there's the health surcharge, there's the application fee. And for any person coming into the UK, that's probably around £5,000. So the nature of immigration will change. But will the number of people coming in also change? Because the UK remains a very dynamic, is a very dynamic economy and always reinvents itself. It's much more dynamic than many of the other economies around us. So effectively, as a result of these changes, we may actually see more immigration, but a different immigration. So when we put an ad on LinkedIn right now, we get applicants from India, Latin America, you know, all of Asia, I'd say. And so we are now suddenly no longer just hiring from the EU, but from all around the world. So it will be interesting to see how this really pans out. And the fact that historically, there have always been 250,000, 300,000 people immigrating, great migrating to the UK, that obviously has always put, you know, underpinned the market because, you know, these are usually hardworking people and they then want to invest in a property at some point as they progress with their career and they discover the UK is a great place to live and they want to settle here. That for the UK, for Spain, we pretty much see the same. Uh, we believe that Spain will con uh, continue to attract a lot of migration. Uh, quality of life is very good. Uh, the weather obviously is great. Um, Spain is quite international, um, particularly, you know, uh, the coastal areas will continue to uh, attract a lot of people from all over Europe. Um, I actually was talking a few weeks ago to um, someone who is running one of the UK-based uh, retail groups where, you know, she decided to relocate to uh, Ibiza because uh, they are allowed to work from there now. And they said, not a problem. You can basically be in Ibiza full-time and we'll set, around to, we'll set up the corporate structure uh, around that. So Spain will continue to attract a lot of uh, migration. Um, Netherlands continues to have very strong population growth. So again, that's a market in which we're a very active lender. Um, and Ireland uh, as well continues to have uh, strong population growth, uh, both the Republic and Northern Ireland. So in all those markets where we are, uh, we effectively see that. Uh, now there's obviously other countries uh, where population gro growth is not that strong and therefore you don't have the same underpinning of the real estate market. And so this is a very long wind that uh, answer to your question. No, we don't see huge correction coming through anytime soon. No, look, I uh, I like long answers because that actually talked um, in in the detail that we were looking for um, throughout the relative markets that you guys are operating in. So, Johan, how do you see uh, the role of the broker in the market changing from a lending perspective? Yeah, we believe the broker will become increasingly professional. Um, our view is that the broker plays a very important and irreplaceable role in the market. You need someone that actually assists the borrower with a loan application and that basically acts as conduit for many of the things between the borrower and uh, the lender. Um, it makes the process much more efficient. 
Um, and obviously, the broker generally has access to a large number of lenders. And a good broker will immediately know what loan request suits a particular or a group of lenders. And so basically, the brokers save an enormous amount of time uh, for the lenders. And that is why we, you know, we have never been open to applications over the internet and any of these type of technology solutions because ultimately you get a lot of loan requests that simply don't work. The brokers play an incredibly important role in the market and uh, I don't see that fundamentally changing. Other than that, some of the brokers that today are sometimes slightly more introducers will have to up their game to provide more advice to their clients and be much more involved in the loan application. I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, recognizing the role of the broker, a real broker who, who can um, you know, strip away the time that will be spent on the lender side to identify if there's a deal there or not uh, is invaluable. Um, and going forward, um, obviously you're embracing brokers and, and that's one of your main sources of business. Um, is there anything that you'd like to to change within that? Or are you going to invest in that side of the business? Um, what are your thoughts on that section? It is really important to build up good and strong relationships, not only with the borrowers, but also with the brokers. The relationship with the borrower comes after, in many cases, after the loan has been done. You meet the borrower, obviously, before you grant the loan, but then, you know, you develop the relationship um, during the life cycle of the loan as there's always issues that need to be discussed, particularly when it's a development loan. No development ever goes according to plan. Um, and the relationship with the broker is very important so that the broker has a very good and detailed insight of what the capabilities are. And, you know, Fiducium is one lender, but at ARK & Co, you're probably dealing with hundreds of lenders. And so that is then the challenge for the brokers, basically, to know, okay, what is the strength of each of these uh, lenders? And so that can only be achieved by those lenders having a good relationship with the brokers, a very professional one, and providing necessary transparency. So we like to be very transparent about our underwriting criteria, our pricing metrics, so that the broker has that insight and therefore can very much steer um, loan requests. So some of them may suit us, but many more will not suit us. And you will know as a broker where that loan request should go. I, th I think you're right. I think for me, it's the simple things, communication, um, answering phones, um, letting the broker know if there's a problem, because ultimately, you know, we find solutions for the client. If there's an issue, then we'll find the solution. We, we're not going to dwell on the problem, um, whether it needs to be rebroked with another lender or we, we help the lender find the solution. Um, talking about brokers and lenders, obviously, we, we welcome new talent into the industry. You guys with your graduate program, um, we have something similar here. Um, what advice would you give to the new generation coming into the commercial finance market? whether it be a, a lender or, or broker? Well, my perspective is that this is one of the most exciting uh, areas of the finance industry at this moment of time. My perspective has always been that uh, the rising tide lifts all boats. So when I graduated from university, derivatives was very new. And so I went into equities, equity derivatives, 
And, you know, if you did, if you delivered a good service, you would get a lot of business. And at this moment of time, non-bank lending is a very rapidly growing business for the reasons, again, that we touched on earlier on, which is basically the whole regulatory and capital requirements reform following the financial crisis. And so the other thing in our business, I believe, what is really attractive to new talent is that um, the people joining from university, they actually see an enormous width of different type of businesses, different type of borrowers, different activities, different projects, etc. Where someone starting in a bank right now is facing a very different environment. Um, first of all, there are many silos within the banks. But then again, because of financial crisis, people are doing very narrow jobs at this moment of time. Everything is much more defined. There's a lot of controls. And as a result, when you start in a bank, and I was, so, I was observing that myself uh, you know, uh, at UBS following the financial crisis, as a graduate joining in a large bank like that, you are dealing with one little thing every day <laughs> and you're sitting in a very specific area. Now that's great, you'll be the, the ultimate expert in that area, but what it means is that at the outset of your career, you're missing having that experience exposure to many businesses and to many activities and to many type of people. And that's why I think our industry is particularly attractive to young graduates at this moment of time. I couldn't agree with you more. We've talked about the past. What does the future hold? You know, where, where, talk to me, the next four years, where, where would you like to be and, and what's the business targeting? Um, we know that you tentatively entered the market. It's all about longevity, cautious growth, but growth nevertheless. What, what does the future hold, Johan? We believe that the whole non-bank sector will continue to grow very strongly and we are part of that non-bank uh, sector. Uh, everybody has their own unique positioning in this uh, sector. So we are basically a lender that is not only doing the UK, but is doing uh, a number of other European countries. And at the same time, we are more flexible when it comes to the underlying real estate or the underlying business. So we don't only do residential, but also trading businesses. And we want to continue to grow that. Um, there is enough scope for us to be uh, a lender with a much larger loan book, but it's all about doing it step by step. So our next objective is basically to get the loan book to half a billion. And, uh, you know, that takes a lot of work because we obviously need to replenish the loan book all the time. As, you know, most or pretty all of our borrowers are very successful, um, you know, they are pretty quick in paying back the loans. And so you've got to do new loans all the time. That's the challenge of the job. And, um, you know, as we do that, we will add further business lines. So we will enter new jurisdictions and lend against other assets than just real estate. Yeah. The, the, we don't want to launch this necessarily right now because at this moment of time, we want to really make progress towards the half billion. But then as we approach that, we will also enter new segments. 
Well, I, I, I look forward to watching uh, Fiducium grow. Um, is there anything that you would have done differently, um, knowing what you know now, looking back, I guess, with the benefit of hindsight? That's a very good question. I think not really. I mean, one goes through a big learning exercise. As I said, I came from the equity markets. So that's a good perspective because when you come from the equity markets, you actually look at the business and also the upside behind the business. So you've got a little bit more of an understanding for the entrepreneur, the uh, SME. Um, and so for me, this has been, uh, personally, it has been a great uh, learning curve. Uh, for the company, it has been a great uh, learning curve. And so that's all part of, you know, building up the business, right? And so one has to be willing to make mistakes because if there is not that willingness, then uh, the risk is that one doesn't develop, one doesn't do new things, etc. So I was very glad to hear that you like Fiducium Loan Builder, but that's our effectively our second generation of the product we have. And so you have to build it and then say, okay, that seems to work, but let's build a better version now. And so we always have to uh, renew whatever we do. So I, I, I agree with you. Um, progress is made through experience. Um, you know, without experience, um, you, you, can, you can't really make real progress. And, and making mistakes is part of being experienced in what you do. And I think, um, I think knowing uh, Fiducium from, from the outset, to where you are now um, and to where you're going. I, th I think it's going to be a, an interesting journey and, you know, perhaps you can come back onto our podcast in a year's time uh, and talk, talk, talk to us about uh, the, the progress that you've made in, within that time. Um, any final comments for the listeners um, would, you like to, uh, would you like to say? Yeah, final comment is that we're there for the borrowers, for their projects. And um, also when it seems that there's no obvious financing solution, where there's a will, there's always a way. And we're effectively a lender to TVR. Nobody would assume that it's easy to get a loan for a relaunch of a car manufacturer, but we actually got that done. And we have been lending in many challenging situations where to the broker or the borrower, it wasn't naturally obvious how it could be financed. And so we're always eager uh, to see whether there's a solution. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, one has to look at each loan and, uh, you know, a poor proposition is always going to be a poor proposition. But um, there are solutions in many cases where borrowers or brokers would not automatically expect it. Where there's a will, there's a way. Johan Grutat of Fiducium, thank you very much indeed for your time and thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure.